You're listening to a Frequency Podcast Network production. I'm Laura Palmer. This is season two of Island Crime Gone Boys, episode six Window Shopping. I used to have a cottage in a rural area up in the mountains a few hours north of Vancouver. On the weekends, as we neared our place, we would often see him on the road, a man we came to call the walking man. After passing and waving for years, we pulled over and offered him a lift one rainy evening. Turns out he lived near us on a farm where he helped out with chores. This man had a cognitive disability. Although he appeared to be in his 40s, his behavior was more like that of a seven-year-old. In time, we forged a kind of friendship. We hired him to chop wood, fix some fencing. We exchanged Christmas gifts. And we gave him rides from time to time. But mostly, we just saw him walking. Walking alone on the highway for miles. I think of him often as I work on this series, how trustingly he got into our car, how eager he was to help out. If someone is murdering men on Vancouver Island, some of them have likely been targeted on the roadside. first began researching this series, I was struck by how many of the men who were missing had some measure of disability. For a time, I thought these guys had been singled out, attacked for that reason. And it's true. People with disabilities are indeed far more vulnerable to violence. I spoke with a disabilities rights advocate about that. But he also talked to me about how, if they can walk, people with disabilities walk as a means of transportation. I felt pretty stupid when I first heard this perspective. I hadn't considered that the men might be on the road because they had somewhere to go. Because getting from A to B when you're poor means walking or riding a bike if you can. When speaking with criminologist Kim Rosmo, he asked the question, if someone is targeting disabled people, how would they know a man they see along the roadside is disabled? And the answer, they probably wouldn't. I now believe I had it wrong, or at least I had it upside down. The missing men may have been out on the road alone, vulnerable, because of the challenges in their life brought on by their disabilities. But I don't believe they were singled out for that reason. Instead, I now think it's more likely poverty and social exclusion made them easy targets. 
Serial killers are rare. But serial killer expert Michael Arntfield believes they likely number far more than the average person imagines. There was a time when authorities in the northern part of this province were reluctant to conclude there could be a serial killer on the Highway of Tears. We now know there were at least three serial killers preying on women on that stretch of road. I've concentrated on the men and their circumstances for most of this series. In this episode, instead of profiling the victims, I'm turning my attention to the motivation and possible M.O. of an offender. I'm asking the question, if there is a serial killer or killers responsible for some of these men's disappearances, what might that look like? Rob Gordon is a criminologist at Simon Fraser University and a former police officer. He's a good-natured guy, and back in my newsroom days, I found his willingness to speak with journalists helpful on many occasions. Oh, hi, Rob. My name is Laura Palmer. Yes, yes. What can I do for you this fine morning? Well, maybe I'll just tell you a wee bit about what I'm doing, and then you can perhaps um, tell me if it's something you are comfortable commenting on or um, or maybe point me in a different direction. I don't know. All right, go ahead. This is season two of a crime-focused, uh, in-depth kind of series I'm doing, looking at um, men who have gone missing on the island in recent years. Oh, really? Yeah. Men who've gone missing. Professor Gordon agrees to discuss the case over the phone from his home on the mainland. I describe the information I've gathered so far, and he quickly lays out a possible scenario. A group of individuals with some common characteristics, one of which is the intellectual disabilities that render them very vulnerable to suggestion and to abduction. And along with that goes you know, sexual interference and, and murder to conceal the sexual interference. Um, I, that, that, I think, is pretty much what you're working with, yes? Well, yes and no. If these men are victims of a serial predator, sex is a possible motivation. But as I research and speak with serial killer experts, it's clear the reasons for serial predation are varied. Power, anger, thrill, or as part of a criminal enterprise. There are many possible theories which could account for what's happening here. I mean, it's not just necessarily one person. I mean, it can be, but let's just say for the minute, there's a predator on the move on the east side of Vancouver Island, ranging from Duncan to Campbell River and then across occasionally on the the highway that links to Port Alberni. Uh, And that uh, working hypothesis would be that the person's strolling around 
the predator is out there driving backwards and forwards, picking people up. Professor Gordon knows that as a journalist, I'm in a position to raise questions, but that I'm also cautious about definitive answers. I mean, it wouldn't surprise me if, if you didn't turn up trumps on this because it, it, it is the kind of pattern of predatory behavior that, you, that, that we've seen before. One of, one of the interesting things, it, it sounds very much as if if there is a predator on the move, then they're using a limited number of, of uh, transportation routes. So they're linking um, these missing people to those, those routes, helps you identify who might be responsible. It's somebody who travels those routes frequently and appears to be traveling the routes innocently. So it's somebody who delivers or has a reason for traveling up and down and across the island on a relatively regular basis. Uh, and you know there'll, there'll, there'll be others out there who haven't been reported missing. And it's just that these individuals, because they are they have intellectual disabilities, they have family members who care. And so those family members are or were looking out for them, still are looking out for them, uh, and uh, are more alert to their disappearances. And that might be the case with somebody who was just, you know, a backpacker. There are a number of common themes that thread their way through this story. The highway is one of them. Early on in my research, I learn about the FBI's Highway Serial Killer Initiative. I make a request to speak with the FBI. I want to talk to them about the situation here. As you might imagine, making that happen isn't easy. It takes six months of calls and emails to make my case. The FBI doesn't want to be seen to be stepping on their Canadian colleagues' toes. Finally, an FBI crime analyst with the BAU agrees to speak with me. Yes, my name is Christine DePoister, and I am a crime analyst with the Behavioral Analysis Unit for VICAP Unit. Here's Christine describing the work of the Highway Serial Killer Initiative. So a little bit about the the HSK initiative. Um, It is investigations that involve victims with a nexus to the highway, which means the victim's body was recovered near a major highway or a state road. Um, The victims are typically known to be high-risk victims who are involved in prostitution, Um, drug activity. They're typically working the major truck stops or the rest stops. Uh, From time to time, we found that some of them were stranded motorists or hitchhikers. I ask, what is it about the highway itself that makes it an attractive place for offenders to search for victims? Well, you know, the highway does offer some measure of anonymity to the offender. Because, one, they don't have their employer uh, in that semi-truck with them, the the types of cases that we're dealing with. It's easy to escape from the scene 
Um, they're able to put a lot of distance between uh, the scene and the victim um, before anyone's able to identify that they have a victim along the highway or uh, in a rural area. Um, typically, these areas are unlit. They're um, isolated areas, so the bodies are difficult to recover or find um, at times, and then witnesses um, typically aren't available because it, it is so rural and dark where these bodies have been found. Of course, in the case I'm looking at, there are no bodies, just stories of men who were once known to walk or bike alone and are now gone. I ask this FBI crime analyst what she makes of the victim profile here. It's kind of like um, when you go shopping, Laura. If you go window shopping a lot, eventually you're going to buy something, right? Because something's going to look good to you. So that's with a criminal. They're going to try to focus on those high-risk victims, people who someone might not miss, someone who's very vulnerable. And they may or they may not be successful depending on that victim of how aware they are of their surroundings and their situation. So the attempted abduction is something that needs to be looked at. I know with you saying that some of them were uh, mentally handicapped, um, that they were known to be loner-type individuals. Those are some of the characteristics that we see in some of these cases that we're working on with law enforcement. We look at cases where it involves homeless people. Sometimes that homeless individual has been recovered along that major highway. So we've got to start looking at, was this a long-haul truck driver? Was it someone who had them in their vehicle and just pulled off the side of the road and decided to discard the body there? But the first thing is, let's look at who's traveling in that area that we know is a known offender. Let's start looking at their uh, modus operandi. Let's start looking at their victimology, that they, the types of victims that they target, and go from there. So what does go from there mean? How does the Highway Serial Killer Initiative actually work as an aid in police investigations? So once they've identified a suspect or an offender that is known to be a long-haul truck driver, we start doing a workup in conjunction with their investigation. Uh, if the body was recovered and they don't have an offender or suspect identified, then we start trying to identify potential leads. We start looking at other cases that we have and doing a comparison of the various aspects of the crime. And we do this all through the hundreds of cases that we have in the national database because a huge part of this initiative is communication, networking, and getting the information out to them, saying this is something that is going on, has been going on, and it's, it's, to us, looks like it's going to continue as long as we have these highways and vulnerable victims, victims with these lifestyles and uh, family members who may not have seen their loved ones in years and don't know that they're actually missing. Gone Boys, we'll be right back. After a quick break.
The FBI's Highway Serial Killer Initiative has been around for over a decade now. It's been responsible for identifying hundreds of suspects. This initiative is based near Quantico, Virginia, the place made famous in TV shows and movies for training criminal profilers out of the Behavioral Analysis Unit. Retired police officer Jim Van Allen got his training as a profiler there decades ago. Sure. Uh, my name is Jim Van Allen, and uh, my background is in law enforcement for 31 and a half years. I was with the Ontario Provincial Police, and then for the last half of my career, I was selected as a uh, criminal profiler in the behavioral sciences section, a graduate of the FBI National Academy in uh, Quantico, Virginia. Jim moved west to be with his wife, who's also a police officer. And these days, he's a specialist at a private security firm. But it's his work as a profiler I'm keen on. When you boil it down, it's a lot of logic, common sense, and the process of a criminal profiler really isn't all that different than the process that an ins uh, a very experienced investigator would use. And, and what I do is I take that specialized knowledge and translate it for use by the investigator. I come from that world. I know how those people speak. I know what it is they need to uh, know during an investigation. I know the challenges they face, and I try and uh, I try and understand their crime, and I try and communicate the understanding to the investigators so they know uh, what it is they're investigating and uh, best uh, or recommended techniques for pursuing a certain type of criminal. Here's what Jim tells me when I first begin describing the missing men here. And let me be quite blunt. You're describing. Uh, People with a lot of social problems, a lot of personal problems. Uh, relatives tend to embellish the good stuff and minimize the bad stuff. Uh, we had a, a drowning case uh, one time, and uh, this uh, this uh, gentleman went uh, swimming, and then nobody saw him, and he, we believed he had drowned. And they said, "There's no way he drowned. He used to be." Uh, He's an Olympic quality swimmer. Long story short, when we finally recovered him, he had drowned. He was um, extremely out of shape. He had not been athletic for the last 20 years of his life. And he had swam and uh, had a heart attack and died. And, uh, but they had made him out to be uh, an Olympic uh, athlete. We thought we were looking for uh, a much different body shape. and. Uh, everything else, but that's how people see them and that's how they want you to see them too. I wouldn't be surprised if, if some of what the families have reported to you have uh, been softened a bit in terms of, uh, you know, uh, the, the worst thing they've done, maybe you don't hear about it or something like that, especially I'm thinking suicide. These people are not happy at all, and you've got a bipolar individual, you've got other people with significant mental health problems, maybe mix in a little bit of drug uh, use. Uh, you've got a very, very problematic cast of um, 
missing people there. Honestly, Jim's perspective calls to mind what was being said about Vancouver's missing women, serial killer Robert Picton's victims, 20 years ago. As we talk, Jim acknowledges how some of what he has said could be interpreted, telling me he doesn't want to come off as a knuckle-dragging cop. Everybody counts or nobody counts. That's the motto of one of my favorite fictional detectives, Harry Bosch, the hero of Michael Connolly's novels. I appreciate Jim's perspective is based on decades of work as a police officer. He is telling me that the victims and the circumstances are less than ideal from an investigative point of view. But I asked Jim to help me understand what an offender with this kind of victimology might look like. And he agrees. Well, he'd be uh, sort of a, uh, a loner type guy because he'd have a lot of time on his hands. He would not uh, likely be involved in heterosexual relationships of any uh, kind, but certainly not of any. Uh, substance or uh, duration. These people are not attractive to theft. They're not uh, potential robbery victims. They're not, uh, they don't sound to be connected to a particular reason or a cause or an ideology. So if it comes right down to it, sex would likely be the big driving force. And I mean, it is in a lot of these cases anyways. It's a as power and control over another person. Still, why these men? Why this particular set of victims? Most people select their victims based on age, gender, and availability. And in my experience, two out of three is not bad for some of these offenders. But you'll see you know, a guy who prefers women between the ages of 20 to 25, but because you're a hitchhiker and you're here now and I've got nothing else to do, I don't care if you're outside my ethnic uh, preference or outside my age preference, gender and availability will take it. And, uh, and, and he knows what he wants to do and he'll, um, he's, he's prepared to do it, but here's the opportunity, so he decides to do it right now. And if these guys are out walking the highway, they're certainly vulnerable to a guy that would have a car. It'd be, uh, you know, something a little bit more with utility, lower end. Uh, you know, you have to have resources if you're going to have a car and, and, and money to uh, win the car. So he's probably going to have some form of occupation, but it wouldn't be high-end technical or it wouldn't be highly successful and probably semi-skilled at best or labor or something like that. And it's always so much better if you have the victim's body afterwards, because then you can say what was done to it. You get to infer a lot more about the psychology from the offender when you know what they did to the body. Of course, with the missing men cases, there are no bodies. 
As for why no bodies have ever been found, Jim harkens back to the Picton case. That's what the uh, offender has uh, opened to their resources. I mean, a guy like Picton uh, goes and picked up willing, uh, women who are willing to um, go with him. Uh, he knows he's, uh, he's got a cover story, and uh, a lot of people aren't going to be looking for them afterward. Uh, so he's got his own house, a barn, uh, vehicles. He's got a, a made-to-measure body disposal system because uh, it's a farm. In the Picton serial murder case Jim is referring to, it took dozens of disappearances over a span of more than 15 years before authorities began investigating the missing women cases as connected homicides. So what might it take to move Vancouver Island's missing men's cases from a series of seemingly unconnected disappearances to a search for an offender? You need a victim saying that they saw an attempted abduction. You'd need uh, your guy that says he was abducted, but then now he is found. Uh, you'd need him to uh, come forward and give a statement as to what happened. Then you'd have a description of a guy in a car, maybe. Uh, you'd have to have a, a, a trucker seeing something. Um, You'd have to have somebody reporting suspicions of an unusual neighbor, uh, unusual practices going around on the house, around a house, and they never see him living normally. Uh, it'd have to be something to uh, give police the impression that this is related to foul play. Now, holy shit! Look at this. We've got. Six people missing in the same area, under the same circumstances, the same sort of victimology, you know, or what you described as a victim profile. Uh, and, and this guy went missing due to foul play. Wow, what about these other six, you know? And then you start looking in on that uh, and, and see if you can't uh, glean out any more commonalities uh, look at a look at a person of interest that maybe has uh, strange relation, no relations with his neighbors, or or just basic relations. Goes to work, comes home, uh, engages in other things. Wasn't really social uh, growing up. Uh, n nobody really knew him in in high school, or probably didn't even show up for his uh, picture in the uh, yearbook type of thing. As to whether the offender has a criminal record, Jim has this to say. Just like uh, normal human development, uh, first we crawl, then we walk, then we run, then we run really fast. Uh, you started out in journalism, doing uh, small stories, local interest stories, regional news stories, provincial news stories, national news stories. Um, these guys start out too. And I always say, and, and research uh, confirms that when you're looking at um, sexual crimes, often theft and break-ins uh, are part of the offender's evolution. And I always used to say, before you can steal sex or before you can steal somebody's life, 
you steal little things first. And you gotta cross the little bridges before you start crossing the big bridges. Nobody comes out of the gate as a uh, serial killer. Gone Boys raises the possibility that the missing men may be homicide victims and asks the question, could some of these cases be connected? If they are, there would be a serial killer on the island. But I've left this focus on the killer till now for a couple of reasons. First, I don't find killers that interesting. I've interviewed a couple of murderers over the years. They were narcissists and they were dull. The missing men's stories, the lives of their families, the social context of their disappearances, these elements fascinate me. And secondly, the serial murder question is the most speculative part of the story. I've asked the professionals you've heard to extrapolate their expertise to a set of circumstances in which they have no direct knowledge. They have been open and cooperative, and their perspectives make for compelling grist for the mill. But does it amount to more than that? The investigating officers on the individual cases have not agreed to go on the record with me. I've stayed in touch with the island's media spokesperson throughout my work on this series. If there is an update on any of the cases, he promises to keep me in the loop. But for now, here's the official word on the situation from Corporal Chris Manso of the RCMP. I think if the statistics were managed the exact same way every year, year over year, and you use the same parameters, I think it would look very, very similar. At this time, um, there's no information to indicate that there's any, any links on any of those files. However, things do change and information may come forward in the future. And if I have to apologize for any information that, that I've given out that is incorrect, I will absolutely do so. Um, we, we want to resolve these missing person files um, properly um, for the sake of the family members. Um, and if it needs to go to court, we have to make sure that it goes through all of its proper due processes as well. Next on Gone Boys, if the missing could talk. They just sort of go and you wonder where they've gone and sometimes they come back and then there's the people in the community written in the paper that just go and never come back. It's no one really tracks people that I know of, you know? Um, I can see how you can just wander out of a community and never come back and if your family's not actively connecting with you or friends that actively connect with you, it's so easy to just completely fall under the radar, you'd think, eh? I'm Laura Palmer. This is Island Crime, Season 2, Gone Boys. Please do take a moment to rate and review this podcast. Your effort helps to raise the profile of these men's stories here on the island and beyond. <laughs>